Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. We have a great show in store for you today. And uh, later, Lori is going to be speaking with Steve Hindi of Shark. He always has something new and exciting to share, plus a lot more. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and listen anytime and anywhere. Also, the show is sponsored by the nonprofit Advancing the Interest of Animals, so please check out AIanimals.org, AIanimals.org. Now, you all remember that huge animated film, Finding Nemo, right, from 2003? Well, just released is the Disney Pixar follow-up, Finding Dory. And Finding Dory features another animated fish, a blue tang. Well, this has raised serious concerns about uh, possible effects of the movie on the wild blue tang populations and their environments. I want to welcome Nicholas Whips. Nicholas is an attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity with the Oceans Program, and he's worked extensively in this area to protect coral reefs and reef species in Hawaii, Florida, the Great Barrier Reef, and the Coral Triangle. Welcome, Nicholas. Hello. Okay, Nicholas, so why don't we start by going back to the film Finding Nemo. Uh, what happened to fish populations following that film that uh, leads to the interest in the blue tang related to the new movie? So the effect of Finding Nemo on fish populations was actually quite profound, especially with clownfish populations. Uh, the market for clownfish spiked dramatically, which caused a lot more fish to be sourced from the wild, oftentimes using destructive methods such as cyanide fishing. Okay, so cyanide fishing, before I read the press release that the center provided, I had never heard about that. So please describe uh, this uh, process. Cyanide fishing involves uh, fishermen, usually in a country like the Philippines and Indonesia, squirting liquid cyanide dissolved into salt water onto reefs directly. And the goal is to stun the fish mm. to make them easier to capture. Oh However, goodness. it has massive side effects. Most of the invertebrates and fish species that are nearby uh, are going to die on contact as well as large amounts of corals. That's incredible. This is uh, legal or not? This is illegal in the countries that it is most widely practiced, which is the Philippines and Indonesia. It is also illegal to import these cyanide-caught fish into the United States. However, enforcement both in the sourcing countries as well as the United States has been lacking. And the Lacey Act is in play here. That's correct. So the Lacey Act on the United States side makes it illegal to import any animal that was caught in violation of another country's laws. In this case, we're talking about the Philippines and Indonesia and Sri Lanka, the three largest exporting countries for these reef fish for aquariums uh, that have all made cyanide fishing illegal. And since most of the fish we get come from those countries, most, uh, if not all, or a vast majority of the cyanide-caught fish coming into the United States are also brought here illegally. The market for saltwater fish, for fish caught in, in the wild, is huge, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So 
based off of various estimates, it's somewhere between 20 to 30 million fish globally. The United States is the largest importer for these fish. We have the majority of the hobbyists that practice this, um, the aquaria, the, the saltwater aquarium. So they, we have about 80% of the market for saltwater aquariums in the United States. You mean 80% of the worldwide market is in the U.S.? Of, that's correct, wow. of, of the worldwide market. Uh-huh. Now, I'll just tell you and our audience, for, for the record, Animals Today and Advancing the Interest of Animals, we uh, do not support the hobby of having home aquariums, whether the fish are caught in the wild or bred for this specific purpose. But a distinction is made for the purpose of this movie in order to protect the wild species and the reefs. Is that correct? Yes. So we have been talking about if if there is going to be a demand for these species that we strongly emphasize that that demand does not be met by taking fish from the wild. There are um, captive bred populations of many species of fish, such as clownfish. However, the blue tank still has yet to be bred in captivity. So we are concerned that an increase in demand for blue tang is going to cause more of these fish to be taken from the wild. What exactly happens to the reefs uh, related to the cyanide? And how widespread is that? Everyone cares about reefs, and so everyone ought to be up in arms about this practice. Yeah, they ought to be. Uh, So... First, about the scale, uh, we recently have done an analysis that has shown about 6 million fish are caught each year and imported into the United States that have been caught using cyanide. That's about half of the total number of fish imported into the United States. And a lot more fish die on the road coming Mm -hmm. into the United States, either directly on the reef or while waiting to be imported. And so in total, we're estimating that about 20 million fish have been exposed to cyanide each year that are um, going to be either entering into the United States or dying prematurely. Um, And that can cause a pretty large impact on the reef, just millions of fish. One scientist has estimated that about one square meter of reef is killed for every fish collected using cyanide. And so over the years, this is cyanide fishing has gone on for decades. Mm. Over the years, that is a massive amount of what would otherwise be healthy reefs that are dying. Is there any idea how big an impact that is compared to the other possible factors that harm reefs? Compared to other impacts, other threats to the reefs, uh, there are other practices that are also destructive. Um, For the aquarium trade, cyanide fishing ranks as the most destructive. Dynamite fishing uh, is also used to catch fish uh, for the food trade. And other threats involve ocean acidification, which can kill the reef, and climate change, which which can also kill the reef. And so it's really hard to say on on a larger scale, it's probably ocean acidification and climate change that pose the greatest threats. However, the most localized threats 
would probably come from cyanide fishing and dynamite fishing. We're speaking with uh, Nicholas Swips, an attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. Nicholas, related to the new film, Finding Dory, what efforts are being made in terms of public outreach and education to prevent or to protect these fish? A lot of scientists and experts had a lot of time talking to the media Mm -hmm. to try to educate people about the difficulty of raising fish in saltwater aquariums. And a lot of these experts have emphasized not buying fish that are sourced from the wild. Um, One of our partners for the fishes has created a app that if you download it, it's called Tank Watch, and it allows the person using the app to determine whether it's a fish is likely to be sourced from the wild versus whether it's being able whether it's able to be captive bred. Disney has also made uh, a, one graphic that discusses the differences between freshwater fish and saltwater fish that. Um, is in a press release that the Humane Society has released. So you could check that as well. Uh, However, Disney has not done a large amount of advocacy on this issue to date. No, I would imagine that would be a a tough tightrope to uh, walk for them. Nicholas, as we conclude here, uh, any uh, advice or guidance for uh, individuals or for our listeners uh, going away? Yeah, sure. So our main advice is to educate yourself about the saltwater aquarium trade. Uh, Cyanide fishing is a very large and destructive part of that trade to date. However, the Center for Biological Diversity, as well as the Humane Society and for the Fishes, have uh, submitted a petition that has asked federal agencies to step up and do simple testing that would allow fish to be detected that have been caught using cyanide. So mm. we can ask you to go on to the website, Center, Bio- Center for Biological Diversity.org, so biologicaldiversity.org, and support that effort. We have uh, a link to a petition that you can sign. Very good, Nicholas Whips. Thank you so much for the great information and good luck. All right. Thank you so much. So very uh, interesting and horrifying how cyanide is used to capture these fish. So many of them die, according to Nicholas. So I hope that uh, families who are bringing their children to see this film don't run out and start a new hobby without thinking of what you're doing. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, our personal view is that we oppose having any fish in captivity. We think they should be in the seas and the oceans and the rivers, but you can make your own choice on that. But as you're considering that, think about the life expectancy of one of these fish in the wild compared to what it would be in your home tank. I mean, most of these fish die within days, weeks, or a month or two of getting them. So you don't want that, do you? You're listening to Animals Today. Stick around after the break. We've got more of the show. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. 
And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi, I'm Lisa Gibbons. I lost my mom to Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is a brutal reality for more than 5 million Americans. No one knows that better than their caregivers and families who suffer too. Research is needed to find treatments and cures faster. You can help fight Alzheimer's disease by visiting brainhealthregistry.org. Brain Health Registry collects vital research information online for free. So do your part. I'm doing mine. Help find Alzheimer's cures faster by visiting brainhealthregistry.org. Hello, I'm Jerry Mathers. I was the beaver in Leave it to Beaver. When I played the beaver on TV, I often got into trouble without even meaning to. Well, years later, after I left Hollywood, I got into real trouble. My blood sugar was through the roof. When I was diagnosed with type 2, I was shocked. Now, the very same natural remedies I use to control my type 2 diabetes are available for you in a super easy program called the Diabetes Solution Kit. If you have diabetes, I urge you to try this step-by-step plan. It has all the natural techniques I used, and it works a lot faster, too. And today, you can try this fast and easy solution without risk. I'm Jerry Mathers, and if I can do it, you can do it, too. If you'd like to normalize your blood sugar and stop taking your diabetes medication completely with your doctor's approval, go to jerrymathers33.com for your free video. That's jerrymathers33.com. Reverse your diabetes in as little as 30 days by going to jerrymathers33.com now. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Time and time again, we have witnessed government agencies implementing programs and practices which favor one set of animals at the expense of another. One that comes to mind is how beautiful and majestic wild horses are managed, and by that I mean rounded up to protect cattle grazing lands. Often what occurs is that one group of animals or species gets targeted and killed to supposedly help or protect another species. And more often than not, there are economic factors driving the decision-making. The latest chapter in the saga brings us to the mouth of the mighty Columbia River in the area of Astoria, Oregon, a truly beautiful part of the country. 
Water birds called cormorants are being legally shot, their nests being destroyed, and their eggs coated in oil to suffocate the developing hatchlings, all in an attempt to help the populations of salmon and steelhead, also known as rainbow trout. Our friend Steve Hindi, director of Shark, was recently there on the scene, and he's going to give us his first hand account of the recent events there. Now, there's a lawsuit opposing the culling with a federal trial scheduled in March. Of course, the Audubon Society opposes the killings. The lawyer leading the case for the Audubon Society and other plaintiffs, Dan Rolf, said, quote, everyone agrees we need to take measures to improve threatened and endangered salmon and steelhead runs. The problem is it's quite clear that killing cormorants will not accomplish that goal. With us now is Steve Hindi. Hey, Steve. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Steve, you and your team went to the Columbia River recently to obtain footage of government officials killing these beautiful birds called cormorants by blasting them out of the sky with shotguns. Why are these birds being killed, Steve? Well, they're being scapegoated. I am absolutely being scapegoated. This is such an incredible story. Uh, of of government mismanagement and scapegoating and taxpayer waste and animal the, the waste of animal lives. It, here's what's going on: the Columbia River has millions and millions of salmon that come down the river, and you know it's the slow salmon are so important to the to the environment to the animals that live all along there. Uh, uh, bears, uh, ospreys, eagles, otters, uh, gulls, terns, you know, all these animals that are depending on the salmon as part of the natural web. Yeah. Well, there are, there is this series of dams on the Columbia River. If you've ever seen the Columbia River, it's a beautiful, peaceful, just an incredible river, except where you have these dams. The dams, think of them as a meat grinder for, for any animals coming through. Yeah. And there's, it's not just one dam. One dam would be enough to grind up millions of these animals. But there's actually a series of more than a dozen of them. And most of them are run by the Army Corps of Engineers. So the Army Corps of Engineers, the government's own figures, state that the Army Corps of Engineers dams grind up nearly two-thirds of the salmon and steelhead coming down the river. That's millions and millions and millions of animals. Nearly two-thirds of the population is being ground up by those dams. That's even before you get to the issues of overfishing and of pollution and, and, uh, and the degradation of their habitat. That's even before. Two-thirds, right off the top by the Army Corps of Engineers. And it's important to remember that the Army Corps of Engineers is doing it because the Army Corps of Engineers then, in order to try and scapegoat somebody to take the attention off of what they are doing, claimed that it was the cormorants who need to be killed so that so many salmon don't die. Now, the cormorants are, you know, they are eating maybe, I don't know, a half a percent, a percent of the salmon at some tiny percentage, because there's there's, there's cormorants there, but there's also eagles and other birds and other animals, and everybody's eating the salmon, uh, including, of course, humans. Uh, so the Army Corps of Engineers, who is responsible for two-thirds of the killing right off the top, 
then tries to blame the cormorants, brings in the, the United States Department of Agriculture. Most specifically, it's infamous Wildlife Services Division, right, right. which is just a bunch of animal serial killers. That's what they do. They just kill animals. They kill hundreds of species of animals by the millions in the United States every single year, and they do it with our tax dollars. So the Army Corps of Engineers, scapegoating the cormorants, brings in the USDA's wildlife services killers, and then to top it off, the United States Coast Guard set up an exclusion zone around these killers to try and keep people from seeing what they do. But we got around that. We, with the help of Bob Barker, you know, the animal animal uh, protection hero, sure. and his uh, associate, Nancy Burnett, we were able to buy a boat and to be on the Columbia River. And uh, although the this exclusion zone, uh, which tried to keep us away, it made our job more difficult, but we were able to do extensive filming of the killing, and we have put that up on YouTube. And then these killers, uh, you know, supposedly they had guidelines so that the cormorant population wouldn't be seriously impacted. And, but, but they, they committed so much killing and they so destroyed the, the cormorant's nesting area that 16,000 adult birds uh, abandoned their nests and the eggs were then uh, destroyed and eaten by gulls, terns, and, uh, and eagles. Now, you were not welcome with open arms to document the actions of our government agencies, right? In fact, you were prevented no, no, from getting... No, they did everything they could. Right. They, I mean, the Coast Guard kept coming in right. to intimidate us. They sent helicopters. I mean, the amount of taxpayer money used for the killing and to try to cover up the killing was just off the scale. So the USDA and Wildlife Services do not want the public to know what's going on. Right. As to what's going on, that it is humans, human activities, and government mismanagement, which is destroying the salmon population, either from overfishing, from the dam system, from the eroding of their, of their environment, you know, through mining and through the forestry that goes on, you know, the logging. It's just, it's unbelievable what they're doing to one of the most beautiful places, not just in the country, but on the planet. And one of the most productive areas as far as like salmon and other wildlife, uh, it's being utterly destroyed. And to try and blame it on a marine bird is if it wasn't for all the, the suffering and the destruction, it would be comical. So, Steve, what can people do to express their disapproval in what's happening there? You need to pull up our videos because we list a few different uh, sources that I don't have in front of me right now. The USDA, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, and, and also the Coast Guard, and express your displeasure with everything that they're, that they're doing. You can go to YouTube and search Cormorant Kill, Cormorant Slaughter, and, and the videos will come up. Steve, what's your website? SharkOnline.org. Director of Shark, showing animals respect and kindness. Steve Hindi, thank you so much. Thank you, doctor. Hi, Peter. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm great. Peter, how long have we been in production now? Oh, since 2009. Wow. We started out in Palm Springs, California, locally. That's right. And now we're everywhere. How we've grown. 
And remember, visit AnimalsTodayRadio.com where you can listen to all the previous shows. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. Actually, it's our 350th edition of Let's Be Fair. So after more than six years of looking at America's legal system, let's do something a little different. Let's look at the legal situation in another economic power, Japan. The Wall Street Journal reports that Japan is struggling with a very unusual problem. It says, and I quote, its people aren't litigious enough, end of quote. That's right. Some Japanese experts actually think they need more lawsuits. Why? Well, 15 years ago, officials there started using law schools in the United States as a model for educating their lawyers. They were able to recruit more students, but public attitudes on suing one another didn't change. Japanese people like resolving conflicts privately, so now they have a lot of lawyers with nothing to do. Let's be fair. Is that really a problem? Here in the U.S., it was once reported that we have 30 times more lawsuits per person than Japan. Now that's a litigation problem. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Thanks for calling Consolidated Credit Counseling Services. Can I help you? I sure hope so. I'm in debt. Is it credit card bills? Yes, I have two credit cards that I'm making minimum payments on and another that I'm behind on. I owe about $5,000. What interest rates are you paying? Between 18 and 22%. At that rate, it'll take over 20 years to pay off. Wow. 
20 years? What Consolidated Credit can do is work with your creditors to lower your payments and reduce or even eliminate your interest charges. You should be able to pay everything off in three or four years. What do I have to do? Just give me some details and get ready to celebrate your freedom from debt. We're Consolidated Credit. We're here to give you freedom from debt. Call now for your free consultation. If I had known it was this easy, I would have called years ago. Call 1-800-897-8374. 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services Incorporated, 5701 West Sunlight Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Not a loan company, licensed by New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM19, Oregon DM80031. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tinoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tinoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tinoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800-930-1669. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I just read an interesting article about this phenomenon that is happening in Israel, and the bottom line is that a wave of veganism is gradually taking over the country. Now, according to the article in Tablet Magazine titled Life After Brisket, about 5% of Israelis are strictly vegans, with an additional 8% reporting that they are vegetarian. Domino's Pizza even offers a soy cheese vegan pizza, the only market worldwide where it does so. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Richard Schwartz. Richard is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at the College of Staten Island, New York, and is the author of several books, including the seminal work Judaism and Vegetarianism. Richard has authored more than 200 articles and is President Emeritus and Executive Board Member at Jewish Vegetarians of North America, JVNA. Hey, Richard. Hi, Lori. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's always great to be on your program, and uh, I want to commend you for your long-time efforts in promoting veganism and just a better world. And best wishes for continued success. Thank you very much. Richard, 
Why are so many Israelis now adopting a vegan lifestyle? Are there religious underpinnings? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've been doing a little research. I have a whole bunch of reasons here. I want to just go through the past and then get to the religious underpinnings, which are really very important. In 2012, a young man you may be familiar with from the U.S., Gary Yarovsky, you know, he speaks in many colleges here. He was on a speaking tour in Israel, and also they made a YouTube of his talks, put Hebrew um, subscripts on it, and it went like viral there, almost a million. Uh, Israeli saw it and wow. was a major major factor in uh, increase in vegans and unfortunately there there's been scandals in the kosher meat industry there's also been a lot of large scale uh, exposés just like in the US and you know some are broadcast on national TV of some of the horrible horror conditions you know, where the animals are raised there in Israel and I have to give a lot of credit, actually, to the vegan movement there. They've been very creative. They've been very active. And they've had rallies and demonstrations and uh, all kinds of programs. And they've been successful in uh, getting more and more vegan restaurants and uh, getting more and more vegan products into their supermarkets and into even restaurants that aren't vegan. And... Uh, one of the things is, and I can attest to this from my trips here, very high quality of these Israeli fruits and vegetables, and from what people tell me, uh, sort of negative quality to the meats there in Israel. Israel, by the way, has very strong laws on compassion for animals. And to give one example, some years ago, the Supreme Court in Israel used those laws to outlaw pate de foie gras. And also, by the way, Israel has... Uh, a lot of very strong uh, vegan and animal rights groups. And, um, and of course, as you know, uh, animal-based agriculture is a major, major contributor to climate change. But getting to the basic part of your question, yes, Judaism has very powerful teachings on compassion for animals and health and the environment. And uh, I hope these are factors even among the non-religious, they are aware that Judaism has strong teachings on compassion and justice, etc. The way the ideal diet is really vegan, as indicated, that was God's first regimen, first dietary regimen in the Garden of Eden, indicated in the first chapter of the Torah, and uh, actually it's also the diet pictured for the Messianic age that Jews yearn for, based on the very powerful prophecy of Isaiah, that in that ideal time, the Messianic period, among other things, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the lion will destroy the ox, no one shall hurt nor destroy in all of God's holy mountain. And uh, finally, sorry for the long answer, but there are six key mandates that I try to point out in my books and articles that point to veganism as the ideal diet for Jews and really everybody else. And very briefly, Six very fundamental Jewish mandates. Take care of our health. Treat animals with compassion. Be co-workers with God in protecting the environment. Conserving natural resources. Helping hungry people. And seeking and pursuing peace. So, Richard, this phenomenon that's happening in Israel, it's mostly a Jewish thing going on versus across-the-board phenomenon. It's very powerful among the Jewish community. In the Jewish community also, 
have classes in uh, Arab communities, so there's some movement there as well. But uh, it certainly is a major factor among the Jews in Israel. And hopefully, even in the U.S., I think there have been some studies that show that within the vegan movements in the U.S. and the animal rights movements, Jews are very heavily represented, way beyond the very small part of the U.S. Yeah. population. And again, part of that is that uh, we have these very strong teachings that, for example, Jews ought to be Rachmanim B'nai Rachmanim, compassionate children of compassionate ancestors, imitating a God whose compassion, according to the book of Psalms, is over all of God's works. And many other Jewish teachings, as part of the Ten Commandments, very important, of course, in Judaism and other religions, because not only are humans to rest on the Sabbath day, but animals as well. And a Jew is not to sit down to his or her own meal before making sure that if he has a pet or farm animal, that that animal has been fed. Well, Richard, who's leading this growth that we're seeing? Is it coming from the rabbis as advice, or is it more of a grassroots phenomenon? Well, to a large extent, it's grassroots, but there are some rabbis. So it's a little bit of both, uh, a lot grassroots, a lot of what are secular Jews in some of those big animal rights and vegan groups in Israel, again, having demonstrations, really uh, pushing things forward and uh, making an impact. And thank God the media has picked this up. And uh, again, the movement has been using YouTube and other social media to really get the word out. Yeah. Yeah, and another BBC News article also covered this movement. This one titled, uh, Veganism Takes Root in the Land of Milk and Honey. And this one highlights all the new vegan eateries being opened and also that the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, is accommodating yeah. not only the diets of the vegan soldiers, but also providing them with the clothing that is not made from animal products. What does that tell you? Yeah, yeah, it's really a great thing. I mean, uh, so many Israelis that, um, are involved in the IDF. They should only have peace and harmony soon, so it won't be so necessarily important. But that is really amazing. I have uh, a, a grandson that served some years ago. I have one now who happens to be a vegan, and uh, he's very happy about the changes. There's always more to be done. But they do now provide vegan options, or in some cases, giving a special supplement of money to vegans to buy their own food. And the boots, vegan boots, non-leather, and uh, they have uh, berets or caps that are without wool. So again, that's uh, one more indication of the powerful surge toward veganism. Again, of course, so much more has to be done. You mentioned that 5% are vegans, and of course that still means that just one out of 20 Israelis is vegan, but that has increased quite a bit. By the way, in the U.S. it's only about 2%, and in the United Kingdom also only about 2% who are vegan, 1% in Germany. So even though 5% is not exactly a huge number compared to the total population, it still is far higher than in other countries. India, by the way, has probably a lot more vegetarians, but uh, milk is a big thing there, so uh, they have less vegans per capita.
So in your role as a board member of Jewish Vegetarians of North America, how can you adopt and implement what's happening in Israel here? We promote those six mandates. Judaism, like other religions, is based on compassion and justice and sharing. So we have to get that message out. But I hope if people would like to work on these issues, uh, they should feel free to contact me at email address veggie, B-E-G-G-I-E-R-I-C-H at gmail.com. Richard, I observe the posts of American Jews on social media who are very connected with their traditional meat-based diets. And they share photos of their corned beef sandwiches from landmark Manhattan delis and show glamour pictures of their homemade brisket. And it seems like traditional Jewish cooking with its European roots brings a source of pride to them as well as a feeling of connectedness with the Jewish community at large. How do you bring awareness when the cultural traditions are so strong? Well, this is a very, very difficult question, uh, hard to break through. What I can say is we have to make it a priority to try to make a difference. We have to point out that for Jews who want to take Jewish values seriously, that uh, we have a choice. Jews have a choice in their diets. That choice should be made based on the highest of Jewish values. And if one wants to be consistent with the Jewish teachings on compassion for animals, preserving of our health, uh, protecting the environment, conserving natural resources, helping hungry people, seeking and pursuing peace, these are all basic Jewish values. And um, I'm sure that God would not want us to have a diet that's harmful to our health, that's terrible in how we treat animals, that is really damaging the environment and putting us on the brink of a climate catastrophe that is so wasteful of water, energy, land, grain, etc. Richard Schwartz, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure and uh, best wishes to you for continued success in the very important work that you are doing. Thank you, sir. Major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. This report is brought to you by Mayflower. Millennials are being lured by major cities, but what will attract them to your city? The 2016 Mayflower Mover Insights study discovered where and why millennials are moving. With one in five millennials moving in the past year, these insights may be the difference between your city seeing the headlights or taillights of a Mayflower moving truck. Of millennials who have moved, nearly half identified love as a reason for moving. Millennials identified experiences as important for relocating, with food and restaurants as a top priority. Millennials continue to be enamored by urban centers, with nearly 6 in 10 wanting to live in or near a big city. 
Melissa Sullivan, Director of Marketing, Mayflower. Our Mayflower agents across the country are moving millennials as they begin new chapters of their lives, and many agents report new careers, relationships, and experiences as drivers of this generation's moves. Findings from our study help us analyze where our customers move and why they are moving. For moving tips, visit Mayflower.com. I'm Bob Dorigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray, and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. BrainHealthRegistry.org. Welcome back to the show. You know, recently, Lori had a nice discussion with Tony Frohoff from In Defense of Animals, in which uh, Frohoff celebrated the news that SeaWorld was going to discontinue its whale breeding program, but also emphasized that there are many remaining problems to address with captive whales and dolphins. Assuming you could persuade or compel a facility to release or give up their animals, where would the animals go? Dr. Lori Marino is leading an organization that's addressing that very important question. Lori is executive director of the Camilla Center for Animal Advocacy and now also president of the Whale Sanctuary Project. Hi, Dr. Marino. Hi, Peter. How are you? I am just fine and so excited to hear about this project. What is it? Well, the Whale Sanctuary Project is a nonprofit organization that we formed uh, just very recently. Uh, and it came out of discussions that we've had over the past few months with experts in the various fields uh, of marine mammal science and training and engineering. And uh, we, we have uh, put together an organization of experts, and the mission is to develop a seaside sanctuary for orcas and belugas in North America. And uh, that will be the very first one of its kind. Explain the need for this sort of sanctuary. Well, the need for a seaside sanctuary for dolphins and whales is, is pretty apparent. Uh, first of all, just on the, on, in a general sense, there are none. 
so, and there are none, uh, no permanent seaside retirement facilities for dolphins and whales anywhere in the world. And we currently have those for elephants and great apes and all other kinds of animals. So that just needs to be done because it doesn't exist. But more importantly, uh, because it doesn't exist, there's nothing we can do about the fact that there are orcas, belugas, and other dolphins in theme parks and aquariums around the world because most of them, if not all of them, cannot be released into the wild, and therefore they would have to remain in concrete tanks. And what we're hoping to do is provide the alternative, which is a seaside sanctuary where they could live in a natural setting, but under the care of our staff. And that is a much better proposition for their welfare than concrete tanks. Okay, well, that is very exciting. I imagine there are huge barriers which you are thinking about, such as how do you construct, how do you site one of these places? Well, actually, the barriers to something like this are not as great as you would think. Uh, We have a stellar team of engineers and experts who are uh, very, very good at doing this and are very experienced. We have a lot of the people that provided sanctuary for Keiko, and uh, they they know how to construct uh, a facility like this. So um, the real barriers are really... The fact that um, we would hope that, you know, the theme park industry like SeaWorld and so forth uh, would eventually take the next step and work with us to create these facilities. So it's very doable. We have funding from a wonderful uh, founding donor, Munchkin Corporation, and have plans to fundraise in the future uh, to complete the project. And we're ready to do this, and we can do it. And all we need is for um, the first residents to sign up. Lori, in a given sanctuary, how many individual animals do you expect could live there? And uh, how do you know they're going to get along? Well, that's a very good question, and it's one that uh, we have to consider very carefully. We really uh, don't know at this point, uh, how many residents will be in the first sanctuary because we haven't chosen the site yet. And so the number of residents will be determined by the size of the site, how it can be partitioned, and as, as well as who the individuals are and whether they get along with each other, are they the same species, do they know each other? And we have to be prepared for every combination. So although we'll do everything we can to make sure that they, the, the animals in our care will have uh, the, the richest social life possible, um, we also know that we have to keep them safe. And uh, that might mean that you know, well, that definitely means that we're not going to be just dumping them all into the same space without very, very careful consideration. Yes. And what will they eat? Well, uh, the residents will eat fish, and we are making the assumption that we will have to provision them. Mm-hmm. Now, as part of their enrichment, they may be uh, given the opportunity to hunt for themselves because there will be fish coming in to the facility from the ocean, from the open ocean. And if they show an interest in that, uh, we'll, we'll promote that. We'll support them with that. But, but it's really important to know that, you know, if we 
have anyone who was born in captivity, the chances are that they will stay um, with us for the rest of their life. And what we will do then is provide for them the best life they can possibly have um, in a sanctuary environment. So you envision a, a covert inlet sort of cord- yes. cordoned off by a net. Yes, that's right. For want of a better word, a net. <laughs> uh, we, yes, we are looking at coves, bays, inlets, natural uh, aspects of the geography of the coasts, and uh, we'll go from there. We have a long list of criteria that have to be met for it to be a candidate site. Uh, but yes, we are not looking at uh, building sea pens and putting the animals in there. We're really looking at uh, great expanses. Lori, what's the website where people could uh, read more about this? www.whalesanctuaryproject.org. And I've been there. There's a lot of neat information there, and I'm sure we will see more and more. Before we uh, let you go now, I wanted to ask you if you would comment about this wonderful story of a freed aquarium dolphin named Sample. What happened there? Well, what happened is that uh, she was in captivity in in a theme park for four years, and they decided to try to rehabilitate and release her. And Mm. so she was transferred to a temporary sanctuary. Well, um, she decided to take matters in her own hand, and eventually, before they approved her release into the ocean, she made the autonomous decision to slip out. Mm. And not only did she leave the facility, but she found her natal group and had a baby. Wow. Uh, So uh, this is really just a beautiful example of how autonomous these beings are and how, you know, they have ideas about how they want their life to go. Is that the first time this has been documented? I think so. I think so in terms of not the first time that uh, a dolphin has been released successfully, but the first time that I believe a dolphin has taken matters into her own hands and then actually found her natal group and then actually um, had a baby. So uh, that whole beginning-to-end story, that might be quite unique. That's incredible. Dr. Lori Marino, Whale Sanctuary Project, thank you very much, and good luck. We'll be following carefully. Thank you so much. And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.